Question, how much more progress do we need? Are we progressing in order to feed the energy system to make new technology developments? What if we stop today? Welcome to the My Energy 2050 podcast. I'm your host, Michael LaBelle. Here, we interview experts and leaders participating in this great energy transition of a zero carbon future by 2050. We engage in topics that shed light on the current state of the world, but we also consider longer term trends that affect how and when we build a sustainable and equitable energy system. You can contact us with feedback or suggestions by Twitter at MyEnergy2050 or on the MyEnergy2050 LinkedIn profile. Please follow us on iTunes or Stitcher so that you can automatically get updated with each new episode. If you like this episode and feel others can benefit, please share it on social media. Today's guest is Professor Tina Solomon Hunter, Professor of Energy, Environment, and Resources Law at McCurry Law School, University of McCurry in Australia. Previously, she was the director of the Aberdeen University Center for Energy Law. Tina's published widely on topics like shale gas legal frameworks, Arctic petroleum law, and is the author and editor of a range of legal and policy articles and books related to hydrocarbon extraction renewable energy. In this episode, we discuss the impact of the COVID-19 crisis on global oil markets, what this means for energy security in the Middle East, and how it can sustain the U.S. military involvement in the region, despite the U.S. becoming a leading global producer of oil and gas. We also discuss drilling in the Arctic for oil and gas, and how this is not a commercial venture, but a state-sponsored one. We also delve into the topic of risk associated with new investments and why studying oil and gas in university can actually help to ensure higher environmental standards in the fossil fuel industry. In this first episode of My Energy 2050, I want to welcome Tina Solomon Hunter. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you for being here. My first question relates to the general impact of the COVID-19 crisis on the oil and gas sector. You can interpret this question however you want. And that's fine. It's been phenomenal. You know, it's like sitting um, in the back seat of a car and watching a, a, a very slow car crash and knowing that we're all going to be injured, but it's just how badly are we going to be injured? And, you know, if I feel like that, imagine what it must be like for governments. Um, and that's, that's an interesting question um, to even contemplate. But I guess one of the things that I first thought of when all this started was, is this going to change the world order? Now, are we going to get out of this a new world economic order and, in fact, a new geopolitical order based on nothing more than, you know, you know the, the, the price of oil and, and the way it's behaved in a, in a market that we've never seen before? I mean, let's take the US, for instance. You know, to have a negative price for West, West Texas Intermediate, I mean, that's unheard of. You know, 25, 35, 40 years ago, the US was supreme. 10 years ago, the US became supreme again with shale gas. And now shale gas is highly at risk. They're shutting down. West Texas Intermediate, which is obviously the market crude, is not only has it tanked, but it's gone into negative. I mean, these are, you know, you hear people say these are uncertain times. And We've had uncertain times before. This is unprecedented times. This is something that no world war, no geopolitical threat has ever been able to achieve. Not even the collapse of the Soviet Union, um, the coming down of the wall, the reunification of, of West Germany, which we all thought was the worst thing that was ever going to happen economically. Um, that's just nothing. That's baby steps compared to this. Mm -hmm. And then what, what do these past events or do any of these past events tell us how, how the markets or even the demand, say, for oil and gas might play out over the next couple of years? Well, for each of those um, events or episodes that I, I've talked about, there's one thing that comes, comes after all of them, and that's predictability. People will use oil. People will use gas. We will rebuild. We always want to get back to an order. And these have been geopolitical events, okay? These have been events that are largely if you want to, to say, um, are in the control or in the hands of governments. You know, if governments or representatives are able to sit down and forge deals and, and, and make agreements and treaties and 
plot an order and a path, then we could get some sort of recovery. But this is not like that. There is no order. There is no path. There is no treaty to be made. You can't make an agreement with the virus. We don't know how long this is going to go on for, how long the economies are being affected, who's going to work, who's not, what the demand for oil and gas is going to be like when we go back, what is this going to do for um, distributed grids, um, how is this all going to play out is a huge uncertainty and markets don't like uncertainties. That's the reality. And because of that, the markets are reacting negatively and rightly so. The question then becomes, well, when do we get order? And the answer to that is we don't know. And the very aspect of not knowing when we get order is what's going to keep this perpetuating and make this much worse for much longer. And in the area of, say, investments then, because, I mean, investments <laughs> are, need order. Uh, and if we are in an era of no order, then, then how do... how is it simply governments and industry together flailing around and being unable to find a balance? Well, what balance are you trying to achieve? I mean, investment protection is about invest, ensuring that investment comes and then when that investment comes to undertake activities, that there will be protection. The protection will come from the law. The protection will come from the government. But what happens when the government itself is trying to desperately protect the fundamentals of their own society. They don't have the capacity or perhaps even the will to, to protect investments in an area where, you know, it could be seen as a luxury mainly because you're trying to um, protect the fundamental pillars of society. And when you've got what, the US has got what, 20% unemployment? Yeah, it's huge already. It's huge. Mm -hmm. I mean, when you've got 20% unemployment, trying to provide accommodation and food stamps for millions of people you know does that is that going to override your protection of investment you know and the the forming of new investments and and all of these fundamental building blocks of society are being threatened in a way that have never been threatened threatened before and as a result society is going to have to realign itself mm -hmm. and that includes investments and investors and do you think, I mean, one of the big, um, we could say, side benefits of this collapse essentially is the cleaning of the environment. Uh, so less fossil fuel use for sure. And people can see it and, and feel it, especially those living in cities. And do you think, despite all, all this uncertainty, that there's going to be a push for maybe a cleaner trajectory? trajectory for for technology for energy technologies or it's sliding back and just using the cheap fossil fuels to to move society to find this balance because i mean maybe the cheaper way is fossil fuels but the more innovative kind of longer term push is a cleaner energy system mm -hmm. for those people who who live in cities that see what can be done with less consumption of hydrocarbons I think it provides for them for the very first time a glimpse into what they could accomplish or achieve. We now know that a marked reduction in the consumption will give us what we've projected. So that is fantastic. So it is achievable. What needs to be determined is whether people have the will, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. the will to do that. And that will is going to obviously come from things like maintaining what we're doing and then even going further. That's going to depend on whether people are sick and tired of, you know, their life being changed or whether they get used to it. So, for instance, in the UK where I am at, at present, people, they've changed their way of life because they had to. But you see, as soon as it's relaxed, they go back to the old ways, you know, crowding on beaches, whatever. What's interesting is Australia, where I'm now going to reside and working, um, Australia has seen some change but not a large amount but continue to embrace a new pathway so i think it comes down to the will of the people are we willing to follow this new trajectory or do we see it as a huge inconvenience and we just want to get back to the old life mm -hmm. i hear many people say oh the world is never going to be the same we're going to remain interconnected through electronic media and new technologies 
But then I'm now hearing people saying, I'm just sick of it. I just want it to go. I want my old life back. That's going, that, that's going to be the forefront. That's going to be the watershed of whether we go back to where we were or we embrace new directions and new technologies. And it remains to be seen. I'd, I'd like to think that actually we're going to go down a new path. And I, I certainly am going to be and have been advocating it for a long time. Indeed, we're holding this right now with me in the UK and you in Hungary. So I think that's the future. The question then is, is will everybody embrace that? And will governments promote that? That's the question. Yes, yes. Uh, and depending on the governments, right? I, I, wanted, I wanted to move this along a little bit more to, to your research area, for example, the Arctic and oil gas exploration there. So, I mean, essentially with the bottoming out of the market and the bankruptcies, the challenge in the United States for those operators, mainly in the sh for shale oil and shale gas, uh, what about uh, expenditure for more higher-priced regions, non-traditional regions like the Arctic? How, do, how does this change that? You know, if it wasn't the Arctic, I would have said it would have changed everything. If it was something like the North Sea or a new oil and gas province, in um, Gulf of Mexico, somewhere sort of fairly traditional, fairly non-geopolitical, I would have said it would have changed everything. The reality is no, uh, Russia has just released its um, Arctic principles to 2035. It has its maritime uh, strategy and it also has its energy strategy, energy policy. And if you put those three together, then what we see is that the Arctic is not about, not just about petroleum. It's about a whole range of things. It's about claiming the geopolitical space. It's about remilitarizing, not for a proactive military aggression, but for reclaiming the Arctic space, uh, because that's where the Russian military has, has had a home for a long time. And it's also about the Northern, Northern Sea Route. Mm -hmm. It's about, you know, Russia's new maritime principles are about ensuring that instead of the Arctic Northern Sea Route being just for domestic, that it's an international um, sea route and it's much faster. And I think if you put all of those together, then we know that oil and gas exploration and uh, production, look at Yamal Peninsula, is actually the source of driving those things. So for instance, if you want to get infrastructure in for an oil and gas project, you need planes. Planes can only land up there on military runways or runways that are in, in big towns. So there is a need for population and, and settlement up there. After the end of, of the Soviet Union, settlement and population fell away from those areas, from places like Mamansk, Arkhangelsk and, and, and in between, as did Arctic uh, military bases. They are now being reinstated. There's also fishing fleets, all of these economic activities. The Russian government sees the Arctic as an incredibly important economic zone. Can it be described as like a recolonization? Would that be a um, proper... Re, I, d I don't like the word colonization. Um, resettlement. Mm -hmm. Although this time it's voluntary, which is nice. Um, yes, yes. <laughs> it's always positive. Especially you know, in Russia. I applaud the Russian government for what they're doing because they're making use of all of their land and all of their resources. And in doing so, this takes pressure off some of the more um, heavily used areas. And it makes sense to use that. And it's not without without danger going into the Arctic areas because of, of global warming and, and changes in the environment. And it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out. But I think, you know, oil has to be around about $36 to $40 a barrel in order for that to be break even, let alone even um, profitable. But gas is different, okay? Let's not forget that. And let's not forget that we still have some very hungry gas consumers. You know, countries like China and South Korea and Taiwan, and then what's happening in that region is going to play into this. Let's also not forget that India. Now, India is looking like they're going to fund some huge developments in the Arctic, the Russian Arctic region. And because of that... That's going to make an incredibly um, different dynamic in that zone. So the Russian Arctic is kind of hot, if you'll excuse the expression right now. Norwegian Arctic, they've got developments, but that's 
area is very much being seen as a negative development by the Norwegian people. And there's, of course, the Greenpeace case that keeps sort of popping its head up every so often. And so as a result, we need to see where that's going to go. At the moment, the, um, the North American Arctic is pretty dead. And I don't see any investment, because it's private actors, I don't see any investment there in the foreseeable future at all. I mean, Shell got out when the price was, you know, positively booming compared to now. Um, but Russian Arctic's different because it's driven by and can only actually be developed by Russian state-owned oil companies. And I think therein lies the difference. Mm-hmm. So it's it's wrapped up into their geopolitical... The geopolitical actions of the state as well. Absolutely, without a doubt. I think it's not even so much funding. I think it's about risk. Okay. They they can reduce the risk that... that, Yes. Mm -hmm. And reducing the risk is, is, you know, we talked about investment protection before. You know, when you're the investor and you're the operator in your own territory, what you do is you actually change the dynamics of investment risk. And quite honestly, I think that the only um, investment activity that's likely to get any sort of legs up at the moment is going to be those with state backing because mm-hmm. it reduces the risk. And would you say that, um, and how, okay, actually that's a perfect uh, segue to maybe the traditional areas, uh, the state backing. What, what about these OPEC countries or Middle Eastern countries with the low oil price now? How does that geopolitically change change their positions? I mean, is is the Middle East no longer important for the United States? Is just Russia a this is a, a state project to have extract oil and gas to supply even India joint projects or China and certainly European consumers? But what 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 about these traditional uh, gas actors or sorry uh, oil actors? So that's, that's an interesting question. So if you had have asked me pre-COVID, I would have said that the strength of the US shale had probably broken the back almost of OPEC. Saudi Arabia was certainly in a much weaker position and, and that was for a whole range of reasons. And you can see that with the reforms that are going on in, inside Saudi Arabia in terms of um, social and cultural um, you can see it also with Saudi Vision 2030. Saudi Arabia is really getting ready to open up to the world because oil can't shelter them anymore. That, that's the reality. And, and, and they realise that. They see tourism as the great saviour, which is really interesting. Really interesting. But now, um, my understanding, and I stand corrected, is that many of the shale gas producers due to COVID-19 are on their knees. And for the first time, the production has fell to 5 million barrels a day for a very long time. Now that places Saudi Arabia in a, in, a, in, a, in a really interesting position. In 1980, we had the Carter Doctrine, which said that they would, uh, the US would project, protect its interests in the Middle East, its oil interests, um, no matter what, including with military force. And I have been questioning um, the relevance of the Carter Doctrine for the last sort of half a dozen years. I think suddenly the Carter Doctrine became has become important again. And because there's one thing that the US needs, and that's oil. Can, can you expand on the Carter Doctrine? So this, is the, this Carter Doctrine says, it was announced at the State of the Union in 1980, Carter announced that we would protect our interests in the, in the Middle East, and that protection would include military force if necessary. So it's interesting if you take that from 1980, and then you look at all of the things that have happened in the Middle East militarily, since that time, it gives you a sense of what the impetus might be. So going from that, we, you know, as I said, in the last sort of half a dozen years, I've sort of looked at the Carter Doctrine and thought, is that really relevant now that the US is producing, you know, 12, 13 million barrels of oil and gas a day? Um, And in fact, the US has just become the, the biggest oil and gas producer in the world. And in three months, that's been wiped out. Their gains that they've made in the last 10 years have been wiped out as shale producers cannot sustain that. So where does that leave us in terms of the value of the Middle East and Saudi Arabia in particular? So they come back as valuable partners for yes. the oil and gas. Well, they're on equal footing now, aren't they? They were on equal yes. footing. Mm-hmm. And then lurking in the back of all of this is, is Russia. And you can see why OPEC Plus was not keen to, to, to do anything 
um, because what they got out of this was the continued weakening of the US. And COVID has managed to do what Saudi Arabia and Russia could not do, which was break the back of the shale gas producers. And this is a new world order now. Where this is going to lead us, I have no idea. But gee, it's exciting. What the the technology, right? The hydraulic fracturing technology and the, all the associated technologies that the US innovated, invented to go along with that to become the, the global leader then in oil and gas extraction but now is, is broken because of the price. But the traditional yes. producers can now produce at a cheaper price in the U.S. Well, and, and sustain it. And sustain it. Uh-huh. Yeah. Essentially what the, the ban that was provided by the U.S. like essentially meant that uh, oil couldn't be sold for a cheaper price than, I don't know, what, $40 or something a barrel. But now that's broken. Mm. And the thing you've got to remember is the setup for a conventional well, the setup is incredibly expensive. You know, you've got the, um, you know, all the drilling, then you've got all the infrastructure, and then you've got the pumping and all of that sort of stuff, the pipelines and whatever. Shale is different. So shale relies on continued hydraulic fracturing. So there's always on costs, ongoing costs. So you need to continue to fracture in order to get continued um, field development. Mm-hmm. And so when there's no appetite for that, um, and there's no sort of economic drivers to continue, then essentially your income's going to, to dry up. But the other good thing is that you can then go back to those wells and continue to hydraulically fracture and then continue to produce later on. Mm-hmm. Whereas it's very difficult to suspend production out of a conventional well. So there's pluses and minuses on both sides. But if we're talking about the next few years, and certainly right now, there is a new world order being uh, playing out mm-hmm. and, and coming. And I'm not convinced that the U.S. is going to be at the top of that world order. Uh-uh. I, I mean, I would lay hard on hand and, and make my predictions that in 10 years' time, the strongest player in all of this is going to be Russia. Really? 20 years ago, there was a, a, a paper. I've never been – I read it. Um, it came from Chatham House. It was about 15 years ago, actually. Mm-hmm. And this was before the shale gas revolution, and it said the, U, the, the USSR – wanted global power and they never had it but the, the Russian Federation will be able to have power and global power in, um, in a way that they never could when they were the, um, the USSR for one reason and for one reason only and that's its energy resources because Russia's got everything they've got thorium uranium coal wind hydro they've got gas they've got oil they've got the Arctic they've got the steppes they've got everything and they're developing it and they're smart and they've got good strategies and policies. And that's one of the advantages of having Putin in for 20 years He's is the fact that, that you get somebody that can think in long-term strategies. And that's the whole idea of the new um, energy strategy to 30, 2035, the new Arctic principles to 2035. It's about long-term planning. Mm-hmm. And we see in the US, we see in the UK, we see in many countries, but those in particular, that we can't plan beyond a single term, government term let alone to 2035. And I think that is going to be to the detriment. And I think also allowing the market, um, if I may talk about markets for one moment. Yeah, yeah, that would be great, yes. Mm -hmm. What's been really interesting is for those economies that rely on markets, in something like a pandemic, market is actually the one thing that has let you down. And the market has had to take and capitalise on the use of government money. So it's the socialist system that has held the market up. Mm-hmm. And that's really interesting. And if you have and a I, market, essentially you're working short term. Yeah, the market is always only short term. Mm-hmm. Whereas for the plan, more planned economies, mm-hmm. um, may I say even socialist economies, what you have is a longer term strategy, a longer term vision, and that gives you more fat to be able to um, it gives you a buffer. Yeah, yeah, write it out, write it out. Um, okay, I want to move on a little bit to, to some of your uh, other research. Uh, for example, I came across your writing about the Equinor um, oil and gas uh, exploration, the Great Australian Bite. Uh, can, yeah. you, can you describe that? That, uh, that seemed quite interesting in weighing in and 
I it didn't say it in the article that I found, but but based on your background in Norway as well and your familiarity, and of course familiar familiarity with Australia as well, it seemed like the perfect uh, piece for you to weigh in on that. Can you describe that? Sure. So it, you're right in that the Norwegian knowledge and both of their law and their and their reg, and their um, company and the knowledge of Australia was absolutely ideal. So Equinor took over BP's leases in the Great Australian Bight. It was going to be drilling um, exploration wells in 2,500 metres of water in a virgin area. Can you, in sorry, seas- can you describe what the uh, bite is, the Great Australian yep, Bight? Yep, uh-huh. so it's the area to the south of Australia, um, on, between Australia and Antarctica, basically, um, in the area that sort of goes up in the middle of Australia. <laughs> you know, there's, a, there's a, an area that looks like somebody's taken a bite out, but it's basically... In the, in the seas to the south of Australia. And these are our tuna fishing grounds, great um, areas of tourism. And it's also an area with no petroleum activity at present. Several times they've tried to take on petroleum activities, but um, what has happened is each time, you know, they've tried to drill exploration wells, but each time those wells have not been able to be finished because of the conditions. So BP was going to spend $1.3 billion uh, undertaking exploration drilling in a number of areas. And we got the first environment plan. And what was interesting, um, after going through it with a fine-tooth comb, what I found was that their standards were not as good as what was going to be, that would be used in the North Sea in Australia. Uh, Sorry, let me start again, in Norway. Mm -hmm. So whereas the standards in Norway would be what we call uh, NORSOC D010, which is a very good drilling standard, they were going to use other standards and uh, by their own calculations, um, they couldn't get a rig. If a well was to blow out and cause an oil spill, they couldn't get a rig there for at least 17 days, whereas their own laws, sorry, 29 days, whereas their own laws said that, well, actually you have to have one there within 10 or 12 days. Wow. So my point to them was, well, you're going to come into our backyard and drill with these poor standards, whereas if you were to do it in your own backyard, it would be much higher standard. We think that's wrong Mm -hmm. and you should go home, basically. Um, And so we had a lot of activity and I say we because it was not just me. I worked with Greenpeace, wrote a report about all of this, but then the Sydney Environment Institute at the University of Sydney uh, got together a whole uh, group of experts. So one was a sociologist, Andrew Hopkins, who is amazing. Uh, another guy was Greg Bourne, who used to work for BP. Uh, Madeline Taylor from the University of Sydney, who is in, excellent in, in her area as well. And together we produced a report for the regulator saying, I'm really sorry, but these are the things that you've missed. And these are the things that are really, really important. And about six weeks later, Equinor pulled out. Oh, wow. Uh So that gives you the idea of what academics can actually accomplish. Um, And it also gives you an idea of of having quirky interests. Um, Who'd have thought that knowing about Norway and Australia and having expertise in both what it could bring you? But it was that expertise of being able to say, look, you might be fulfilling technically the Australian law, but that's not the best you can do because we know that you have to do this in Norway. So why don't you at least give us that? And your modelling is wrong because if you were in Norway, this wouldn't be acceptable. And we know that you could do it better, but you refuse to do it because you don't want to pay. And that's not good enough. We're worth more than that. And that's what we said to them repeatedly. Mm-hmm. And and they, they pulled out because of these, uh, the requirement for, or the, and the push or the public opposition to it? Or were there... I, public opposition was big. Um, which is really unusual for Australia, but they pulled out in February. Now, I I would bet my bottom dollar that it wasn't just us. Yeah. What I think is they were watching COVID and knew that the price of oil was going to drop. Okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, because, you know, there were indications. I mean, we're talking about February, mid-February. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So it had got out. Italy was just going off. And they pulled out citing economic reasons, not environmental reasons. And they were going to spend $1.3 billion. And I think they just made a really, re- they hadn't invested that much money there. And I think they made it just a really smart business decision. Yeah, yeah. Really smart. Why would you spend that sort of money in a virgin area um, when there's a stack of people bo- dying of a disease that got out of China? 
you know, that's starting to, to, to be not smart. And they were clever. And I applaud them. Mm-hmm. And and with, with because I went to a conference last year in Bergen, and the chief economist of Equinor was there, and he spoke, and it was really interesting because I mean it was an academic conference, but a lot of people were opposed to them, and they were quite rude, uh, or I don't know from from my perspective of okay, he's a chief economist of an oil and gas company, okay, but he was kind enough to, to show up, but there was some academics that were quite rude. Uh, this is the interesting thing about Ecuador. I mean, Ecuador obviously is used to be Statoil. They changed their name from Statoil to Equinor, State Oil Company, to Equinor and became an energy company. So it's probably the world's first state-owned energy company that actually does everything. And yet increasingly people don't want to work for them. They don't want them in the same room. They are seen in Norway as evil. Yeah, I was Because really... they're a big bad oil company and they're... I predict that, you know, within 10 years, the state will have divested itself of its, of its interest in, in Statoil, mm-hmm. Equinor now, because, you know, the state may own it, but they're not earning so much money from it. And more importantly, to be associated with Statoil is a dirty word. It's, uh, sorry, Equinor. It's, it's no longer cool to be a state-owned oil company in Norway because increasingly the younger generation is finding it unpalatable. Now, what's interesting is that younger generation who has had the most opportunity of any youth in history because of the oil, now are rebelling against the oil. Yeah, it was that money. No, there, there's something, something deeply psychological in that. And that's an area of research that should be taken up, I'm sure. But it yeah. is really interesting that, that people don't want, um, you know, young people are not impressed with stat oil. Even though, oh, sorry, Equinor, even though now it's an energy company, they're into wind and hydro and uh, uh, hydrogen and all of this, but they're essentially seen as an oil company. And one of the reasons they changed their name, and, and, Stat- and Statoil was very clear about it, was so they could recruit people to work for them. Wow. Uh-huh. Who didn't want to work for Statoil? Actually, this leads into uh, my kind of final area about teaching and research is is exactly this, like, students and younger younger professionals i mean in the past we're we're going to oil oil and gas the fossil fuel industry and now they're they're going into say renewables or looking at i don't know much more sustainable options or working for companies doing other things uh how and and i get a sense from just from reading and even talking to different people in even oil and gas companies mainly here in central eastern europe that that i know that recruiting uh, the bright bright people that are bright graduates is getting harder and harder and they're having to do different things to entice them to to come work for them what is what is the um, do you think oil and gas companies themselves are going to be limited and simply have to diversify and become like this equinor become diversified into other areas of energy or how, how is the man sorry not manpower but the people power right the employees coming in to, to feel their growth going to affect the viability of fossil fuels in the future? That's a really good question. And for those of us who are old enough to remember BP in the 1980s, BP actually changed their logo to BP Beyond Petroleum and actually tried to become an energy company. And it was an incredible failure, absolutely incredible failure. And that's because the timing wasn't right and because cheap fossil fuels in the 1990s made it impossible for them. What I see in young people is that it's geographical, okay? So I've taught on oil and gas law degrees. I've taught on energy law, energy and environment law degrees. And what I see is if you're from a newly emerging oil and gas jurisdiction, like Ghana or Uganda or Tanzania or any of them, oil and gas degrees is the must. But if you're anywhere that's not like that, then you want an energy degree, an energy law. Now, you might take the exact same subjects, but the reality is about badging. It's about names. It's about... Am I interested in energy or am I interested in oil and gas and to the detriment of everything else? And one of the things that we see in oil and gas companies is that they are very aware of the energy transition, that not only is the energy transition coming, but actually that it's here and it's taking place and how are they poised? So many of the skills, the great thing is that many of the skills are transferable. Mm -hmm. So if you're a seismic person and you do seismic survey, that's going to be valuable for finding oil and gas, but it's also going to be valuable for finding the best rock 
um, to use as bedrock to put a offshore wind farm in. Um, so many of these, and same with drilling and the same with completions and all of these things, many of the skills are very transferable. And in fact, in Aberdeen, that's one of the things that they're looking at is how can we transition to the energy economy rather than the oil and gas economy? And that's the sort of conversation that needs to have place. Rather than looking at the outcomes or the activities, look at the skill base. Mm -hmm. What skill base are we developing? So, for instance, is an energy contract different to an oil and gas contract? Are, you know, government policies, all of these sorts of things, what are we actually doing? How different is a pipeline to a transmission line? You know, in terms of property law, absolutely no different. You still need a public easement. Okay, or, or a, 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 an easement. Um, so these are the things that need to be sort of matched up and, um, and, and synchronised. In terms of energy as a, a resource rather than oil and gas, there's going to be a transition. So probably I would, I would suggest to, to listeners, the best thing you could do is watch a movie called Switch. Mm-hmm. It's done by a guy called Scott Tinker. It's from the University of Texas, Austin, and it's about this switch from hydrocarbons to fossil fuels, uh, sorry, to renewables, and how that's going to look and what we need to do to get from one place to another. And it's interesting because they talk about the fact that actually the driver and the most important thing is going to be gas, and I think they're right. The role of gas in our transition economy is going to be absolutely enormous because gas is such a versatile fuel. And we see that because the European Union has invested a lot of, of time, energy and money and laws into the gas market and gas um, security. We're seeing that in Russia that they're developing gas. Gas is the, the, the choice for many places, including India, China, Taiwan, Japan. Oil is not the, 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 um, the choice anymore. But what's interesting is our legal institutions, our international legal institutions have not caught up. So, for instance, the International Energy Agency still predicates oil security and doesn't have as much sort of role in, in gas security, these sorts of things. You know, OPEC needs to be, to, to make that shift from just oil producing. It's about oil and gas. Eventually, it'll be about gas. So I see gas as the most important field, particularly now. You talked about technological development before. And I think the technological development around LNG, liquefied natural gas, which allows us to move gas by ship, but also allows us now with new you know, technologies with um, regasification ships that you can have a ship just sitting off the coast and it can store that liquefied gas and then as the state needs it, they can regasify it and put it in. So rather than having these big regasification terminals, you just have a ship, big or small, sitting off the coast. Mm-hmm and they can connect their little pipelines up, and they're not. And so this portability is really important. And that, that's a bit like, you know, the development of what we call Lego nuclear reactors. Yes. So people would, would probably know that at the moment there's a floating oil, uh, sorry, nuclear reactor off the coast, off the Arctic coast in Russia that kind of wanders along to each different towns. That's going to be the future, Lego nuclear reactors, I think, as it should be. Uh-huh. You know, and there's a big fear about nuclear reactors. If you've seen Chernobyl, the series, um, probably rightly so. Yes, <laughs> you know? yes. And, and I would encourage everybody to watch that. Uh, it's incredible. It's really Yeah, good. but we're really shifting um, into a whole new era. Uh, so this energy transition doesn't mean, uh, and this is what I, I like writing about too, is the energy transition doesn't mean just renewable, like clean energy well it would depend on your your point of view but but that would include nuclear that also does include gas which still mm -hmm. i like to think of it as a transition to a lower carbon economy Mm -hmm. um because the high carbon economy is oil and coal and and you know countries have to get off coal says me who's an australian who is about to create the world's (laughs) biggest coal mine but i apologize for my government um but you know that lower that lower um, carbon economy is critical. And I think what we do is we transition to lower and then lower and then lower and lower, and it's a step form. It's not a all or nothing because we rarely do that in history. Have a look at history. You know, so, for instance, the development of weapons. We didn't go from spears to ICBMs. 
You know, we had so many step changes in between that. And I think the shift from oil and, and, and coal to wind power only has got so many step changes. We need to develop batteries. We need to develop, you know, wind, other forms of storage. You know, what about solar? How are we going to do solar? The next thing that I perceive will be critical is solar panels offshore. Because the problem with solar panels is they take up too much land. And in countries like Australia, they're actually taking up agricultural land. Yes, I see that here in Eastern Europe. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so when we can actually put solar panels in a place that can stop uh, consuming land and have this conflict of land use, that will be a, a big step change. And the development of batteries. And then just, just to be really depressing, um, because I can be, what about when we do develop those batteries? What is going to be the environmental and economic consequences of the materials that we put in those batteries? You know, how many virgin forests are going to be raped and pillaged? How many people in developed, developing or extremely underdeveloped nations are going to be abused in terms of a human rights For the minerals or whatever the minerals. To go I mean, we're, we're seeing that in countries already. You know, very young children working um, to dig up rocks. Mm-hmm. You know, these are first world problems, we think, in terms of, oh, you know, are we going to transition to what economy? Probably the last thing I, I would say is, you know, what about developing economies? Do they, this, and this is a question, a philosophical question that I don't have the answer to, do they have the right to undertake economic development by going through the carbon cycle? And what I mean by that is to go from high carbon to lower carbon to lower to lower, but should they start at higher carbon like we did? Mm-hmm. And do they have the right to do that? Or if you turn it on its flip side, do we, as a Western world, have the right to stop them? Yeah, especially when our companies are so active in, in this area. Yes. Despite the, yeah, all these global agreements and technology transfers that are supposed to occur. I want to I wanna kind of maybe end on a, on a few things. One would be looking at your profile you have in there, and I, and I know from speaking with you in the past, the role of indigenous groups and religious concepts and natural resource law. Can you, can you kind of describe this? Because, I mean, we've, we've been talking, yes, very much this Western kind of approach, the role of markets, the role of oil and gas, and this very capitalistic system. But what about other social systems that, that uh, are affected by, say, natural resource extractions? Uh, that's very interesting because I'm actually in the middle of, of, of developing a subject on just this topic, uh, Indigenous, religious and political concepts. So let's let's not forget politics in there. So if you look at religious concepts, and, and I'll be fairly brief about this, religious concepts of property in natural resources, well, you wouldn't think that, that religious should even be sort of in that mix, but very much certainly in Islamic law, so in, in the Quran and as part of Sharia law, um, natural resources are a public good. So they're, they're not something that can be privatised. So this is really interesting. So that's, so you know, does that mean that we can't have private oil companies? No, not at all. What that means is the government can delegate, if you like, or give licences to somebody to undertake that activity on their behalf. But they, as the owner and as the caretaker of a resource, have a, have a responsibility but what about things like water? So, for instance, in my country, in Australia, we sell water to the highest bidder and privatise water ownership rights. So under Sharia law, under some, um, um, some religious laws, that would not be allowed because that's not for the public good. So, for instance, in Australia at the moment, farmers can't plant their crops even though the weather's fine, the seeds are there, they've got the land, the land is, is fertile because they don't have water because that water has been sold to Chinese companies to make money. They just trade the water rights. So Australian farmers cannot produce from the earth using God-given water for their, because, for, that would feed the population because water has been privatised. Now, that is something that is very much against some religious aspects, and that's just one example. In terms of uh, things like um, Indigenous views, now, what is the Indigenous view of water, for instance? Again, let's have that example. So I did some work once um, in the Pilbara, the northwest Australia, with an Indigenous group, 
and the company was going to come in and undertake some hydraulic fracturing. And, you know, we stipulated that you had to monitor the water table to make sure there wasn't any damage. And so they said, yes, they would water the monitor, water table down to about 250 metres. But then there was another quite deep water area, about five, 600 metres, and the Indigenous people wanted that monitored as well, that it wasn't damaged. And the company said, no, we're not going to. The water's of no value. You can't drink it. They said, well, it might not be of commercial value to, to you, but for us, that's where the dream serpent comes from. That's our entire belief system comes from there. And they refuse. It's like, it's of absolute no value, we refuse. So that gives you another example of this, this difference in view and therefore value. And of course, the third one is things like, and I've touched on it before, is that capitalist system versus, say, socialist or communist, mm-hmm. where a natural resource in, say, Norway is seen as being there for the good of the people to be developed in a way that all of society uh, benefits. And we see that in Article 1-2 of the Norwegian Petroleum Act of 1994 versus private ownership and the right to develop individually under the capitalist system in the US. And I think that's a perfect example. So you can see how Indigenous, religious and and, and political, socio-political aspects can really alter the use the profitability and the availability of a natural resource. Yeah, so so when we talk about indigenous rights, in a sense, it's only an example. I mean, it's certainly a case, but it's an example of a different perspective of how they view the natural resources, the role uh, as a central part of their society. But we can also look at Norway, right, as like a developed country and say, well, yeah, but they also have a different view than the Americans have a different view. And, the yeah, and that's because have- of political or socio-political rather than, you know, religious. And then if you have, you know, the Saudi view or the Egyptian view or whatever, it's going to be different again, or the Sharia view. Um, There's a very good book done by a colleague of mine who looked at um, Iraqi petroleum contracts. But um, a lot of the first part of the book is about Sharia law in relation to exactly that, to to, to the ownership of of those resources and property and and the benefits. And it's really, the perspective is, is incredibly important for the benefit for everybody. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm appalled that my country sells water. Are, are they uh, selling to the Chinese to ship back to China? or what, No, no, no. Or so the Chinese buy the water rights and the water oh. licenses and then trade them and make money. Just as a commodity? like As a commodity oil. to be traded. Yeah, because it's, yeah. Because Australia's point is, you know, we have to get investment. But for my mind, investment means that the investee the, should be a beneficiary, and that's not the case. Yeah, it's a public you know, good. When, when, a con- when a company comes in and invests in a country, they should be building things for, our, for the benefit of both parties. And that was the traditional investment paradigm, and this is not how it is anymore. Yes, yes. Okay, Tina, I just want to wrap up our time now. One, one, one very last question. And maybe this is the hardest question, or not, I don't know. But for your students, when you do, like, say, an opening lecture for them, how do you how do you describe the energy sector? How do you describe uh, what it what it means to people and the impact that it has in, in a very kind of general way? That's that's a really good question, and I think the energy sector is it's something that we can't live without, but it's something that is the bane of our existence. You know, there's so many flow-on effects. Like everything else, there's so many flow-on effects from the energy system. Um, But there's so many benefits. No energy means no development. No development means no progress. But then I always ask the students the question, how much more progress do we need? Mm -hmm. Are we progressing in order to feed the energy system to make new technology developments? What if we stop today? So one of the biggest problems I think the world has is that this this goal of, you know, improving, um, you know, economic growth every year when do we stop growing when is it acceptable to stop growing and it's the energy system that drives that but also the energy system that is part of that and it's 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 a, it's a uh, feedback loop mechanism you know and you only have to look at china uh, that's the classic feedback but i think it's also very rapidly changing mm-hmm. you know, i've been at, um i did my i started my phd 15 years ago and oil and gas was the only thing on the energy I mean, we didn't even think of the word energy. We thought of, thought of petroleum. Energy didn't exist. And now petroleum or oil and gas is a dirty word. 
some, it's interesting. Somebody said to me, oh, you know, don't see many people with your qualifications or your, you know, skill set in your area. And I'm like, nope, we're a dying breed. But you know what? And this is the problem. We shouldn't be, oil and gas people shouldn't be a dying breed because we are always going to need oil and gas. Mm-hmm. But we can't find people to replace us. Mm-hmm. So trying to find a young academic who's interested in petroleum law is like trying to find hen's teeth. You know, it's a bit like military intelligence. It's a bit of an oxymoron, you know, because oil and gas academic is why would you go into something that's dying? But it's not. Gas is here for a long time. And oil is necessary. Why you've got cars, you've got oil. Why you've got ships, you've got oil. Yeah, you look at all If the you haven't got ships mm-hmm. on oil, you're going to have them on gas, LNG, bunkered gas. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it, all the projections show, right, that uh, oil and gas is here for a very, very long time, and you'll always need the legal and regulatory environment. And and not just, uh, but but it specifically what, what the Equinor uh, example shows, what you did as an academic, you were able to weigh in on a case and point out the deficiencies there. So yeah. it's not just simply going and working for an oil company and trying to extract the oil, but it's also from an environmental side of it as well. Trying to yeah, protect- environmental and just from a just side. You know, mm-hmm. is this, it, it's not just about the environmental impacts. It's also, is this just, is this right? Is this, is this in the best interest of a country? It's not in Australia's best interest to do that. You know, we have to remember to keep our economies diversified. And interestingly, that's probably the thing that's saving Australia at the moment. Australia wants to become this global powerhouse of oil and gas. Oil's dead in the water. I think Australia's got, you know, 10 years supply of oil if they're lucky. I mean, I'm talking wow. 100 years of gas, but oil, it's gone. And that's great, to be honest. But the fact that Australia's economy is so diversified, because it has to be, is probably the one thing that's going to save them in COVID. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, look at a country like Nigeria, like Saudi Arabia. I mean... For want of a better word, they're screwed. Yeah. Because they've got nowhere else to go. Australia does. We can sell something else. Get the water back and <laughs> sell corn. Yeah, yeah we might. Well, it sell grain eventually. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Okay, Tina, thank you very much uh, for setting aside this time. I really appreciate it. No worries. Thanks for having me. Okay, thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the My Energy 2050 podcast. Please follow the My Energy 2050 podcast on iTunes or Stitcher so that you can automatically get updated with each new episode. If you like this episode and feel others can benefit from the information, please share it on social media. You can contact me to provide feedback or suggestions on Twitter at My Energy 2050 or on LinkedIn 